This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, you Skyhawks are climbing high. And speaking of climbing high, Perlin 2 sets a new glider record. Also, problems with unleaded avgas testing. And we lose two aviation giants. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, the 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 1324. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulitz. And David, our guest this week uh, is a surprise guest in that uh, we weren't planning on this, but you ran into him on a trip, a really cool guest. Gary Black, a regional sales director with Cirrus. That's right. And Gary Black from Cirrus actually had a lot to do with flight testing their whole parachute idea. And I did run into him, Ian. We were on a, a, a rafting trip through the Green River area of Utah for combat veterans. And so awesome. I, met, I met Gary and actually paddled with him and uh, led us onto a rock or two. Uh, but we got out of it. <laughs> we got out of it unscathed. And, and he was just a great guy. And he's also a military veteran. So uh, he has a lot to say about Cirrus and a little bit of, to say about his service uh, in the Navy. Awesome. Fantastic. Okay, cool. Uh, hey, let's get right into what's going on with the used airplane market. Now, this is um, we talk about new airplanes a lot and deliveries and, and that sort of thing. But um, used Skyhawks, and if somebody owns one of these, they know what's going on. But for all those who, who don't own the, the four-seat spam cans of the 70s, you take, let's call it uh, the need for pilot training for future airline pilots. You take uh, basic med, which is bringing people back into the fold, and rusty uh, pilots bringing people back in. And prices on used Skyhawks have just gone up astronomically in the past couple of months. It's amazing. We're looking at about a 20% jump on a lot of these models. And they're real familiar to me, the the M models, the Mike models, and the N, like, November models. That's what I trained on for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Those had the typical six-pack of instruments, but they were a friendly lot of, of uh, Cessna airplanes, weren't they, Ian? <laughs> Yeah, it does feel sort of familiar, doesn't it? I guess when you uh, when you train like that, and um, 
yeah, sort of the old reliable. It's amazing, you know, just in the past, VREF, which tracks this, which, by the way, if you're listening and you're an AOPA member, this is a service you get for free, right. uh, is uh, VREF valuations, which can be really useful, both if you're uh, buying or selling. But uh, Rodney Martz, who's been doing this for ages uh, for us for AOPA, tracked this, and he's seeing that those models, the, the let's call it the late 60s to late 70s models, have gone up uh, anywhere from like six to $10,000 just in the last quarter. And that's pretty significant based on about a forty to $50,000 aircraft. I mean, that's a, a, a large chunk of change. Yeah. Um, and those aircraft are real dependable. And like we said, a lot of people did train on them. I did. I'm guessing you might have had a few few hours under your belt in one of those too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Trained in a 152, which are also really strong right now. But uh, my first teaching job, my first instructing job was in a, an N-model Skyhawk, like a lot of folks. Yeah. So um, so we're seeing a lot of people, um, you know, as a result of Basic Med, as you mentioned, 35,000 pilots are now flying under Basic Med, which that's a, a, a huge number. Of course, yeah. we would rather it be, be higher. Yeah. But that's a good start, you know, for sure, for, for being for having the option for about a little bit over a year. By the way, I just got my third class medical uh, renewed yesterday, Ian, by the way. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Now, you went. Now I thought you went to the Basic Med model. Well, I went to the doctor to kind of test out basic med, uh-huh. and um, it was uh, it was an interesting experience because I, I hadn't decided whether I was going to renew my third class or just go basic med, uh-huh. and I wanted to see what would happen. This is in the very early days that went after basic med was passed, and I thought this was a worst-case scenario because I went in there. I had never been to this doctor before. I was just changing, uh-huh. so I had no, uh, you know, no patient history, no, no uh, sort of relationship with this guy, and... It worked out great. He took the form, read the instructions, uh, did everything pretty much I needed to do. Uh, funny enough, with the exception of the eye chart, because they didn't have one in the office. But um, otherwise, it was really painless. And in the end, I, I ended up doing a third class anyway. But uh, it was just really interesting to kind of go through the process and see how it worked. Yeah, and no, I just chose a regular internist doctor up here in Maryland, and uh, probably you know about half a year ago, and he said he would be more than happy to go the basic med route and uh, and check on that for me. But I just figured I actually want to you know go through and get my um, my instrument rating. I want to get I want to get my commercial. I want to you know do a little bit more with aviation. So I went the third class uh, renewal route myself this time. Um, but getting, yeah. but getting back to the getting back to the Cessnas and stuff again, you know, one thing that we we didn't mention, but you know that we did mention the prices, the current prices. But I was going to bring up, you know, a new one of these babies is like astronomically high in price. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's driving that's driving a lot of that too. And we often quote that quote that three hundred seventy nine thousand dollar Textron Cessna price. Um, but but I think fully equipped. Some people told me that they're in excess of four hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah. Um, funny enough, though, I was just talking to somebody from Cessna, and if you want a new Skyhawk, you're going to wait two years. You are um, going to wait two years for a Skyhawk. Two years. They're, yeah, yeah. They're backlogged so much that um, yeah, and that the demand for training, the ab initio, you know, the academies that can afford fleets of new airplanes yeah um they're they're just in as much need as uh the mom and pop flight school who are buying you know the late 70s models uh for a bargain so yeah it's it's uh being squeezed all over actually well i guess our podcast listeners might want to stay tuned to uh to aopa online and the magazine aopa pilot magazine when we uh do a little review on that vulcan air is that three-door mm-hmm. uh 172 lookalike and that should be coming out in the yeah. november issue just a little yeah. So a little info for our folks <laughs> to keep an eye out for that. 
And that's about that's a hundred thousand hundred thousand dollars less in price. That's what we should say. Yeah, that's well, that's very true, and uh, and probably sooner available. So, talking about setting new new heights, new records, uh, the Perlin too. This is just an amazing, phenomenal story. So, um, you wrote this up for the web. So, so tell us more about this glider. Yeah, it's really interesting. We talked to uh, to glider pilot Jim Payne last year on the podcast. Our, our regular podcast uh, listeners might remember that. And he gave us a lot of inside information about what the pilots go through for training and what he went through in his background, his military background and everything. But to cut to the chase real quick on it, the uh, Perlin 2 glider flew to a, a height record of 76,124 feet pressure altitude. And that was on September 2nd. So it was Labor Day weekend Yeah, when a lot of us, a lot of us had the day off or not laboring. Um, they were hard at work uh, off the coast of Argentina, and they were catching. Ian, they were catching what they call a polar vortex. So it's a win. It's yeah. So it's winter down there in the southern hemisphere, right? Or it's fixing to be. Sure. Sure. And so they're rolling in these giant, uh, giant waves of wind, and so they basically, like a modern day surfer, they surfed that mountain of air to uh, to almost eighty thousand feet. Now that's higher than a U two. Jet spy plane, which was wow. at 73,737 73, feet. And they're almost yeah. moving into the territory for an SR 71 Blackbird, my favorite airplane, 85,069 feet. So that's incredible. They are getting up there, man. Their goal is 90,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah. It's really phenomenal. I mean, you should go on the website and look at a picture of this thing. Um, and see what the pilot sees from that altitude. It's uh, it's amazing. It must be such an incredible experience. And you know, I uh, this is one of these things I think that captures people's imagination, even if they're not in aviation. I was telling actually my family about this, and um, everyone's like, "Wow, you know, it's amazing that without an engine that you can go so high." Yeah. Uh, and um, and the thing is that I was watching the same thing you were with my email, and they were I think it was the week before. It's like they smashed a record. They had two records the week before. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, two days later, they sent another email that they smashed the record. And then the next week that they got this, I think, went up another 5,000 feet or something. And so they are just, I guess they're having these great weather conditions uh, to be able to just keep hammering it. They are, they are. They're just killing it down there. And the thing is, is uh, what was cool about it was on Saturday, I just, you know, I, I was following them along on Twitter. And then I saw that they were like at 60-some-odd thousand feet. And I said, well, I'll just look at their virtual cockpit for a while. And this is a real interesting thing to do because I felt like I was with them, Ian. And uh, mm -hmm. I was watching the virtual cockpit, and it, it showed their uh, their altitude gain. It showed their forward speed, uh, battery power, oxygen, things like that. And that virtual cockpit is a real participatory thing. I really, really dug it. It was cool. That's awesome. Very, yeah. very cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, so we're, we're rooting for them. We hope they hit that 90,000 feet. It's uh an incredible thing. Now it's called the, you know, it's called the Airbus Perlin. Um, it is a U.S. project uh, with uh, Airbus funding. So, um, really, uh, really cool project. And they're also, uh, it's not just to do it to set a record, but they're also um, doing experiments, science, technology, engineering, and math. And they're and they're really, you know, investigating the weather and weather patterns and and trying to really get a handle on what you can do with this type of technology. And like you said, Airbus also has their hands in, a, like I say, a solar electric aircraft called a Zephyr. And they also have like a Mars rover, not an aircraft, but but a rover device for the surface of Mars that they're developing. It's pretty cool stuff. It's cool. Um, hey, well, let's move on to something that is seemingly just as hard 
as flying a glider down to 90,000 feet, which is getting lead out of avgas. Oh, man. Uh, Good segue, <laughs> Ian. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> what I think everyone hoped, uh, maybe may short of assumed, let's, let's say hoped, would be a relatively straightforward process, uh, which was, you know, finding a fuel that allowed the fleet largely to just switch over uh, to a fuel without lead has just proved to be very difficult. And a couple of months ago, I think we might have talked about this, uh, they actually suspended testing under, this is called PAFI, the Piston Aviation Fuels Initiative. And all that is, is that just a program uh, whereby everyone has gotten together in the industry and said, okay, this is the, this is the program we're going to follow to try and get a fuel that's certified. Sort of kind of like a, like a standards uh, group of meeting yeah, together. Yeah, exactly. So uh, two fuels had made it this far, uh, one from Swift fuels, which is, uh, I think, out of the Midwest, and then one from Shell. Uh And uh, it was announced again that uh, right before Oshkosh that that had been suspended. And he kind of wondered why. Uh, And then now we're finding out that Swift has actually opted out. They uh, they're throwing up their hands and say we're done with it. Yeah, I guess they were getting frustrated maybe at the glacial pace that this was uh, moving uh, forward with. But but Swift was out there. I mean, a couple of years ago over at Triple Tree, even I believe that you were able to fill up your aircraft with Swift fuels. In fact, Dave Hirschman did a test, if I recall correctly. Yeah, and that's the thing is Swift has had this fuel out there for a little while. That it's available uh, kind of largely in the Midwest and a little bit out west, I think, and, you know, at, at various airports. Um, and they're selling it, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any problem with it. But the the, the challenge is that it, I know it's not a drop-in replacement. I, what this PAPI was going for was a fuel that allowed the vast majority of the fleet to just whoop, do a switchover without really big modification or anything yeah. else. And it turns out that I think both of these fuels, both Swift and Shell, it's been clear through the PAPI that they're just those – fuels aren't going to be drop-ins, and so they're going to have to kind of retool a little bit and see what's next. So in other words, the engines or the fuel systems will need a little tweaking, as I guess is what you're saying, to maintain that's the same amount of horsepower and power without harming other other parts of the aircraft or the engine. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Well, sure, That's the, so the goal was, uh, or is, I should say, to, to make it so that that wouldn't have to happen, at least to a large percentage of the fleet. But it's seeming like there were some issues. Now, part of the challenge here is that it's, it's not a – the process is transparent. So PAFI has a very defined timeline, and, and um, they make announcements when big phases of the project are, are ongoing. But because these fuels are being developed by private companies and there's a competitive nature to it, uh-huh. the whole thing hasn't been transparent. So we don't know publicly exactly why – some of these fuels are having problems, uh, or we're, we're assuming they're having problems. We don't even really know that, but we, we have to assume that. We don't we don't really know what the current situation is, other than it was paused, and now Swift is going to go their own route, which is same as Gammy is doing, which is they're going to try maybe the STC route, uh-huh. which is outside of the PAFI process. And then I think the word is the latest story that Dan Amowitz wrote uh, about a week ago was that. Shell is looking to maybe retool their formulation a little bit. Right, and continue to work with them to mitigate some issues. And you're right about the issues that we don't we don't know about them because they're, they're proprietary probably as these companies yeah. uh, try to develop it because each one, you know, wants to get wants to be selected, I would imagine, and that can mean, you know, bucks and dollars uh, to, yeah. to them as well as, you know, uh, the engine manufacturers will have to, you know, do something assumably yeah. to make the engines more more you know friendly to the to the fuel. Yeah. Um I think I think that's kind of cool. I think if we could do this and and lower the cost 
a little bit of aviation fuel that might help a little bit as we see some of the other technologies come online, the stuff that we talked about on the podcast before too, with you know, the yeah. safety uh, items that you can now put in your cockpit and things like that. All that, if it, if it lowers the cost and makes it a little bit more accessible, would be a great thing. Yeah, I think the challenge is that they don't want to end up with two fuels. That the People feel like there isn't enough capacity in the system or demand to – there's enough capacity, there's not enough demand to um, – to support two fuels because the Swift fuel, for example, if I understand, can run most low compression engines. And so just like a MOGAS, if you had a 172 or a Cherokee or a Cub or whatever, uh-huh. you can run Swift. But if you've got, you know, a Comanche or Mooney or a Bonanza, yeah. right, you could not. Yeah, something. Yeah, with a higher compression, you're not going to do it. And so that's um, that's been their challenge. Gotcha. That's a big. It's a big challenge to overcome, but hopefully, uh, hopefully things will keep moving forward. I know the group's still meeting, and in fact, they had a you know meeting up here at the uh, AOPA's You Can Fly headquarters. Um, mm-hmm. So that was uh, one reason why we got a little bit of a of inside information on what was going on. But I know that Pappy Steering Group is still uh, moving ahead, and uh, we're part of that. So it was the FAA, the EAA. Yep. Uh, like you said, uh, General and also the General Aviation Manufacturers Association (NBAA) and the National Air Transportation Association. Yep, all the folks that need to be in the room, which is really good. Yeah, really good. I like it. So let's talk about uh, just uh, kind of some sad news, but more just remembering a couple of big names in aviation. Um, I don't know. Let's start with John McCain. I mean, um, everybody knows John McCain, obviously. The Maverick. He's the original Maverick. Yep. When you're talking about Mavericks, uh, they, they, before Top Gun, it was it was uh, John McCain, yeah. a military pilot. And, uh, yeah, I certainly followed him through his career because I, I covered him a lot in my previous life uh, as a photojournalist. Is that right? Yeah. But, uh, but you know, he ran, ran for president a couple of times. But he was – I mean, he was at his core. He was an aviator. Yeah. And uh, you and I were – you and I were, were talking um, a little bit before the podcast a little bit about about some of his history. Uh, I know he was a, na- a naval aviator. We know he got uh, shot down in uh, Vietnam and everything. But tell us a couple of things about him that, that we didn't know about. And you had a really – you had really good insight on this that I did not know. Yeah, well, it's interesting because his, you know, his history with aviation is not unlike his larger history, which is that, you know, he he wasn't always partisan. Um, you know, he didn't always take the same position as the rest of the party, or he would change positions uh, when new information was brought up. And so, as I recall, uh, there were times in the past when he would butt heads with aviation, especially over user fees. Uh-huh. But then, uh, in his later service. Um, was a staunch ally of general aviation in the in the pursuit of, of shutting down user fees. So it's uh, it is interesting. I mean, he he um, he had he did have a bit of a complex uh, relationship, but I think in the end came to be a, a big friend of aviation, and in fact was very instrumental as part of the General Aviation Revitalization Act. Gara, the that's the twenty year liability act. Right. He was an instrumental part of that. Well, that is interesting stuff, and I know that back in his in his home state that he was instrumental in saving uh, Luke Air Force Base, uh, which provided a lot of jobs, also you know kept us safe, things like that. And um, and I know that he just I mean, he was highly uh, revered, you know, by by many yeah. people, just not for to be in that maverick, uh, you know, per se. But also, like you said and mentioned a couple of times, he he stood out. You know, he kind of said what he meant. And uh, and he ended up being a, yeah. a, a great ally for G.A. Um, in the later years. Yeah. And one thing that I don't know that if a lot of people realize is his wife, Cindy's a, a pilot as well. And uh, they would fly together to uh, campaign events 
occasionally. Aha. Yeah. I didn't know. I did not know that. I wonder what type of aircraft they favored. I don't know. I'm not sure. We'll have to dig into some history on that. Yeah. But speaking speaking of other history, there's another giant that we lost uh, recently, and uh, Stan Brock from the Remote Area Medical Organization. And it, this, for folks who aren't familiar, it was a humanitarian organization and uh, very well known for flying GA aircraft to assist communities during natural disasters and other emergencies. And so he died August 29th in Knoxville. And Stan uh, talked to me last year about this time, Ian. I was just talking to you before the podcast that I called him up during the uh, hurricanes that were unfolding, Hurricanes Maria, Irma, and Hurricane Harvey to find out what uh, remote area medical was doing at the time. Yeah. And I, I, up until that point, I had no idea how much they did during emergencies like that. Yeah, really incredible, incredible guy, incredible group. And um I thought this was a great tidbit from the story, which, which is that he founded the group um, after having a medical issue kind of in the middle of nowhere and having to walk to a hospital and basically said, from that day forward, I'm going to bring medical care to people who need it. So uh, just a phenomenal story. Yeah. And you know what? I totally, this totally went over my head, but he was part of the NBC's Emmy-winning Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom with Marlon with Marlon Perkins and I remember watching that when I was uh, much younger and I <laughs> yeah. mean cuz that was so cool they would have all these different animals and introduce uh, them to to the television audience and then talk a little bit about conservation and things like that but gosh darn I had no I didn't did not remember that he was a co-host of that show <laughs> And that yeah. was that was huge. Very cool. Very interesting guy. Obviously, did a uh, a lot to advance um, aviation around the world. And so, um, sad news, but but very very neat guy. Yeah, it, it is sad news, and he was highly respected, and will will be fondly remembered. And he also really, you know, uh, like we said earlier, he was the impetus for other aviation organizations uh, joining in and trying to help people out whenever there's an emergency. And that's when GA really shines at its best. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Great point. All right. Hey, let's finish today talking about Garmin and flightplan.com. Now, this is news that uh, probably folks have heard by now, but it's a really uh, interesting, interesting bit of news, which is that Garmin uh, has purchased uh, and brought into their fold flightplan.com. So flightplan.com, which is one of the first online flight plans that I ever used, to be honest with you. I used AOPAs and I used flightplan.com and I used another one from uh, another uh, organization that has to do with experimental aircraft, but we, we won't mention them directly. <laughs> but uh, but the 165,000 registered users uh, were on flightplan.com, and it was it's like basically a stripped down flight plan uh, app. But it would show us yeah. the weather and um, and wind, and I thought it was so cool, Ian, because it would give you choices of altitudes. It kind of direct you in the right altitude. Yeah. Did you want a little bit of headwind, a little bit less of a headwind? Like if you had a choice that you can go, you know, fifty five hundred feet or seventy five hundred feet, what would you do? Yeah, yeah, they were pioneers in that. And that uh, that flight planning engine, which was uh, really really well built, um, I know they were notorious for having just an uncanny ability to predict the uh, the ETA and the estimated time en route. I mean, I would talk to people who would fly, you know, three, four, five hundred mile trips and do a flightplan.com plan. And, you know, they would get rerouted along the way and everything else. And they would land within like a minute 
of what flightplan.com said they were going to. That's amazing. And, uh, it is amazing. It is. The whole thing, the thing was amazing. And so I think they got a big following in the business aviation community because of that, because they were so reliable. And um, it was kind of a, it, it's always been stripped down in the sense that, you know, it wasn't uh, a flashy user interface or anything else, but uh, but the engine that drove it was really, really great. And so now Garmin will kind of bring it to the fold. It should be kind of an interesting partnership. I mean, I mean we don't know exactly what's going to happen here, but Garmin has a ton of really good uh, airport and user data right. and that sort of thing. And obviously flightplan.com has this great engine. And so bringing those things together could be pretty powerful. It could be. You were telling me earlier that uh, that you favor the Garmin app over other apps. I use uh, ForeFlight a little bit more often than you than you do. But this could be really helpful for their app and also the synergy of being able to to grab some of that data from flightplan.com and, and you know streamline it into the Garmin app and vice versa. Uh, I mean, Garmin is such a huge company. A lot of us forget that they bought UPS aviation technologies back in the uh, early 2000s. Yeah. And um, that's when they really started to take off in their bigger boxes, uh, you know, avionics for in-panel avionics and things like that. Yeah. It's not uh, not always, you know, completely apparent when these things happen, what will come of it. And I, I would kind of agree with this one that that's, that's going to be the case. But you know, one thing to point out is the whole idea of uh, panel loading and, and you know, over-the-air basically flight plans where you can take a tablet or something like that and upload it to a to an in-panel navigator. And I, I see that's probably a lot where this is going because, obviously, Garmin's got the hardware. Right. Um, and they, they have some of the software that I can see, uh, you know, in terms of the, the – of tablets and mobility basically it really allows people to you know because we're all on the go and everyone's using their pdas or their phones to to make a little flight plan and uh to zap yeah. that right into your big box it uh yep. i think it helps it it speeds things up it makes it more accurate you can share it with passengers uh that's something yeah. that i did a couple of times recently and uh, they really that's were cool. appreciative of that um yeah that's cool gives that's them peace cool. gives us all a little bit more peace of mind yeah true True. Yeah. So I'll have to wait and see what happens there. Um, well, so, so hey, our, our guest, Gary Black, you, you know, you said you, you met him on a rafting trip, which is very cool. Um, a surprise uh, meeting, which can be some of the best. And so, yeah, I'm really anxious to hear what he has to say, especially about that, uh, that parachute flight testing. So uh, welcome to Hangar Talk, uh, Gary Black, Regional Sales Director, Great Plains for Cirrus. Uh, I want to explain to our Hangar Talk podcast listeners, there's a little background noise. Uh, Gary and I are on a river trip uh, with a bunch of uh, combat veterans, and uh, Gary helped fly a couple of folks over here, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his career. Gary, uh, give us a little rundown of what you're doing now to start off with. Well, uh, Tim Valentine is a uh fellow uh, Cirrus uh, pilot, and Tim last year uh, hosted a uh, trip for uh, veterans, whitewater rafting on the Green River out of Verno, Utah. And it's a fantastic four-day trip, and uh, this particular year we have some uh, Cirrus owners that are uh, that picked up some of the uh, veterans and flew them here, and I was able to fly over with uh, Greg Gilder. Uh, we picked up two veterans in uh, Omaha and came here. 
And now you rode a uh, right seat and handled the radios a little bit on that uh, Phenom jet. That's a little bit different for you. Tell us a little bit about the Cirrus uh, that you normally fly. I believe it's the SR-22 of, of some sort. Correct. Uh, I'm a, a sales director, which means I have a demo plane. I fly around uh, seven states and uh, provinces, and I take uh, uh, business owners and family people and fly them on one of their trips. And it makes sense or it doesn't make sense, uh, but it's typically a longer process. But I, I've flown every model of airplane we have from the SR-20 to the 22 to the turbo to the, the jet. I came on board in 1997 as a flight test uh, engineer and a flight test pilot. So my first six years were in a flight test. That's pretty fascinating. And I know that um, even before you were at Cirrus, you um, flew multiple aircraft, multiple manufacturers. Give us the highlights of a couple of them uh, before we get down to some other business. Well, when I retired from the, the Navy, uh, my wife and I decided that general aviation is where we had the most fun. Uh, this is back in 1994 when Piper was in bankruptcy and Cessna wasn't building anything. And uh, I got in my car and started driving around. And the first place I stopped was uh, Moultrie, Georgia. Uh, and I met BD Mall in June. And, and because I could fly a tailwheel and uh, floats, uh, they hired me as a, a test pilot. You know, uh, I think the podcast listeners know that I'm from Atlanta, so Georgia's close to my heart, and I like them all, folks. Uh, I wish them well. I know that the latest gamma uh, numbers are not uh, that strong for them, but they're still very much into support, and it's a family-owned business that's been around forever. Correct, and uh, they had me uh, test a new Mall 180 on uh, Edo floats, and that's where I kind of got started in general aviation uh, flight test. Uh, did that for a uh, a little over a year, and then I got picked up uh, at Piper to be a, a test pilot with them and flew there for about a year and a half. I uh, had a stint with uh, TBM when they uh, moved over from Texas to uh, Florida, went through their uh, short test pilot school and brought a TBM from uh, France back to uh, Florida. But uh, during this time is when I, I was following the, the mystery of Hangar X. Cirrus had lost a, a test pilot and there was a opportunity so I sent in a, a resume mm -hmm. and Cirrus sent down two uh, airline uh, tickets and said once for your spouse. Wow nice. And that impressed me. Yeah. And my wife looked at the ticket and went where's Duluth? <laughs> and I said I have no idea but that we changed planes in Minneapolis. Uh -huh. And we uh, flew up there and Duluth was fogged in, so we couldn't. So we had to end up driving from Minneapolis. And as we learned out, that uh, the wind, uh, fog in Duluth is fairly common. Uh -huh. But we were so impressed with the, the people up there. Um, they asked if I could start tomorrow, and I asked them if I could find my relief uh, for uh, TBM. And they were willing to wait. And they said, you know, show up uh, two months from now at uh, Oshkosh, and that'll be your day one. That's a cool story, and, and for podcast listeners that, that uh, tune in every once in a while, they know that we pay attention to the gamma numbers, and Cirrus is leading the pack, as they have in single-engine aircraft sales for a pretty good while, and you were telling us a little bit about jumping up from the SR-20 to the 22 to the jet. Tell me a little bit about that Vision jet. I know that's not your main, your main rig that you fly, but you've been in it a couple of times. Tell us a little bit about what you feel, what, what you saw, what you, how the controls are, that kind of thing. Uh, the vision jet was actually uh, Alan Clapmeyer's vision. Uh, he wanted something uh, large and easy to fly. They had uh, had a VK-30 uh, kit-built airplane, and that was very complicated to build and complicated to fly, but the, it was roomy and large. Uh, but they uh, started probably back in 2004 in secret in the Mooseworks, mm -hmm. 
and worked on this for about two years and uh, found out that the, an egg had the, the most interior volume. Mm -hmm. And now they had to figure out how to make this egg fly. <laughs> and they stretched it out a little bit and found out it would have uh, room for uh, five adults and two kids. And then they did the math on two engines versus one. And the single engine uh, Williams jet was as much thrust as two uh, uh, little engines like the Eclipse had. And then the uh, the V-tail became the, the the best way to do that. And the angled threat, thrust got rid of the uh, pitching moments. So in uh, 2006 is when we announced that we were going to do the jet. Uh, 2008, we had a uh, flying prototype, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, and we got certified in, I believe, uh, October of 2016. If my numbers are correct, we have roughly uh, 631 on uh, order now. That's an amazing number, over 600 people waiting in line for a vision jet. And I should add that, uh, Gary, you were in uh, Washington, D.C. not long ago with Dale uh, Klapmeyer for the Collier Trophy Award Banquet, and that was uh, for the vision jet, for the vision of having a vision jet. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, I've heard of the Collier Trophy before. It is the, uh, the Oscars of uh, aviation, and it's military and airline and civilian, uh, obviously the first recipients of it were the uh, the Wright brothers, but other people that have won that have been uh, Chuck Yeager for breaking the seat of sound, uh, Apollo 11 for landing on the, the moon, and for Cirrus to be nominated and actually win it against giants like Boeing and McDonnell Douglas right. is really something. Stiff yeah. competition. And we were honored uh, developing and certifying and having in production the first single-engine pilot-flown uh, aircraft with a, a parachute system installed. And that's a significant point I want to follow up on uh, the parachute system for the Cirrus aircraft line. You and I were talking a little bit about this in the days on this uh, trip out through the Green River in, uh, in Utah. And I must also apologize for the wind noise. It's a little windy here tonight. Um, August 26th is when we're recording this. It's my birthday, by the way. Um, but we are having a great time with some, uh, some veterans here that served our country and, uh, and some civilian uh, pilots and general aviation pilots that donated their time and their service. Uh, many of them are Cirrus aircraft owners uh, as well. But um, let's talk about the parachute system. That is something that a lot of family members are pretty key on. Tell me what, what you know about that. When I came up to uh, Cirrus, I checked with uh, Pat Waddick and I said, what would you like me to design or test? He says, I want you to write a test plan for a whole airplane parachute system. And I went, wow, you know, I, I can't plagiarize anybody else's work. We've got to start from uh, ground zero. And uh, the Klapmeyers, uh, Dale and Allen, wanted a fail-safe method for mid-airs, hardest track, brain strokes, loss of control, mm -hmm. uh, engine failure, uh, austere terrain. And we, uh, uh, I flew with uh, Scott Anderson and Paul Johnston uh, uh, really developed the system. And over about 18 months with uh, dozens of uh, rocket firings, dozens of parachute drops, uh, and eight in flight, we uh, certified the parachute system on the SR-20. 
And I, I remember the SR-20 because I had just started taking my flight lessons back in Atlanta at Peachtree Cap Airport, which also had some of the earlier Cirruses. And I really wanted to get one. It was just so cool, so slick. It had a little bit of a glass panel. It was something that, you know, pilots of that day really never saw. And so you guys were breaking the mold, not just with the parachutes, but with the interior, with the avionics, with the, a little bit of an early embrace of the digital technology. Correct. Uh what fascinated about me uh, with Cirrus is the uh, the SR-20 was actually designed for the non-flying spouse, primarily female, so she could see over the, the dash to have the large multifunction display so she would know where she was, how much fuel they would have, and how much time it would be to get there. And it's a very unintimidating cockpit, feels very much like a BMW 500, and the whole idea is reduce the workload, make the plane comfortable, and then uh, families will uh, travel together and business people will use the airplane for travel. And uh, like we were talking about, combining uh, family travel and a little bit of, uh, of, of travel that general aviation pilots giving back to others, a couple of folks flew their Cirrus SR-22 models out here uh, to help some of these combat veterans enjoy this trip, which is really uh, very impressive to me. I mean, I can't thank them enough for their service, but it goes to show you how a lot of pilots embrace the Cirrus, I guess, the mindset of going places and doing things. Correct. And I see a lot of Cirrus owners are very active in uh, Angel Flight and other uh, charitable uh, Paws and Pets uh, where they use the airplane to, to take uh, people and dogs and things like that and donating their time and fuel and aircraft. And, and, you know, that's the other thing. My wife, Lisa, uh, won't fly with me today because I don't have a Cirrus with a parachute. But my daughter, Lauren, will. But uh, I think that if one day if I was in a Cirrus, she'd jump right back in it. I mean, you can't say too much um, about that, how important that is for that kind of confidence for a significant family member. And even I was thinking about this, trying to increase a pilot population, uh, maybe as parents try to encourage their, their uh, daughters and their sons to fly if they had that kind of confidence in the aircraft, maybe that would lead to a little bit more of, uh, of you know, building that pilot population back. What do you think? You know, I tell people to think of the parachute like you think of a life rafts on a cruise ship. You don't expect that cruise ship to, to sink, but you wouldn't book that cruise if it didn't have lifeboats. Right. It is the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card if every other uh, avenue of uh, recovering the aircraft is unsuccessful. I would have no apprehension about using it night IFR, engine failure. Uh, I've briefed my wife if I go incapacitated with a brain stroke or a heart attack, mm-hmm. use the level button, uh, uh, direct the airplane, talk on the radio, and then, then pull the chute at the right time. And now you were telling me that there's a little a little slogan you guys came up with about pulling the chute. What's that slogan again? I think it's uh, pull early, pull off. And then the whole idea is if you lose control or an emergency happens, remember that you have a parachute. Uh, We actually touch that parachute at either 500 or 600 feet above the ground. We touch the handle. Oh. Just a muscle memory that we have this at our our access. Oh, I didn't know that. That's correct. That's it right in the the checklist. And you remember that you have it. Now look at your other options of, you know, recovering the aircraft, switching fuel tanks and all those things. But, you know, don't delay until you're too low to, to use it. 
Right. Okay. Well, that's really that's key information. Now, let's think a little bit about the Cirrus line and and your role. Uh, I didn't realize that you had a such a huge role in developing that. You know, the flight test parameters for the parachute. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, You're pretty secretive about that. When we were chatting earlier, I'm impressed. Tell me a little bit about the going from a, a 20 to a 22 to the jet. Well, we uh, initially started off with the uh, SR20 with the uh, Continental IO360 200 horsepower engine. And that was a, a great little mover, competed with a, an Arrow or a Mooney 201, but had more room, but it was a lot simpler. Didn't have a prop control, didn't have cow flaps, it didn't have gust locks, it, it just kept it, didn't have a retractable landing gear. But the, the airplane was always wanting more power. And of course, Continental had the IO 550, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do the first flight on that airplane. Wow, cool. And, and I took that off, and it was a winter day, and this airplane was doing 1,900 feet per minute climb rate. And I went, holy smokes, this is the engine that this airplane was built for. And, of course, uh, probably about 2003, uh, the SR-22 became the best-selling airplane and has continued that since. So that's roughly about 15 years. That's a really cool record. Uh, and It's uh, unmatched by anyone else, clearly. Um, that is pretty impressive. You know, uh, speaking of impressive... I know that you also have uh, a, a relatively impressive military career uh, yourself. I know uh, you probably don't talk about it too much, but I learned that you were in the Navy. You flew F-14s. You're a radio intercept officer. Uh, thank you again for your service. And tell us a little bit about that. You were just talking about 1,900 feet per minute climb. Like, compare that to the F-14 you were in. Well, I was fortunate enough right uh, when I got through the Navy, I went through uh, aviation officer candidate school, uh, officer in a gentleman in uh, Pensacola and then I went through uh, VT-10, VT-86 and uh, was a, a radar intercept officer. Basically I tell I was goose in uh, Top Gun, the backseater and I went off to uh, Naval Air Station Miramar in San Diego thinking that I'm going to learn to surf and uh, sing uh, Beach Boy songs and mm-hmm. realize that this is at the end of the Vietnam War and people are coming back with uh, thousands of hours of F-4 Phantom time and combat time and POW time so I actually learned to fly a civilian at that time uh-huh. uh, in the evening in a Cessna 150 and uh, did those uh, jointly in parallel and my first uh, uh, squadron was uh, VF-213 Black Lions and my uh, skipper was uh, Monroe Smith who was very uh, instrumental in getting Top Gun up and running to where it is uh, today Oh cool Yeah. Well, Now you were telling me a little bit of a of a harrowing story about your first night aboard aboard the, uh, your ship. If I'm not putting you on the spot too much, can you can you let our listeners know a little bit about that? It sounded spectacular. Just you can, it's a long story. You can hit me with the highlights. Yeah, see, uh, the F-14 RAG or replacement air group is uh, about ten months long, but about five months into it, the uh, the squadron skipper just came into the ready room. I need a reel now. And the squadron duty officer, take Blackie, he's available. And I hopped in the back of the skipper's F-14 and we went flying about 50 miles out to the uh, Pacific Ocean and the rest of his uh, squadron was out there CQing or what we call carrier qualifying. And we trapped on board and because I didn't have anything else to do, I climbed uh, about four stories up and I'm sitting on underneath the bridge uh, where the uh, captain looks out. This is about 1 a.m. Uh, flight operations go about to 2 a.m. each night. On, and uh, one of our my um, RAG uh, people I knew was uh, Spike Prendergast, and uh, 
Mark Ostertag or Tag, and they taxied up to the catapult. I saw the jet blast deflectors come up. They brought it up to the military power, and the uh, catapult officer uh, touched the, uh, the wand to the deck, and the F-14 started going, and typically you accelerate to about 180 knots in about uh, two and a half seconds in the first 300 feet. Uh, and the airplane accelerated the first 100 feet, and then all of a sudden it started slowing down. And then I saw the Zone 5 afterburners kick on, and these are two huge cones of flame that go 40 feet behind the aircraft. Wow. Just lights up the entire deck. Uh, the deck's very dark. And it goes off the, uh, the end of the boat probably about 110 knots, and we need probably 120 to fly. And the plane disappears over the front end of the carrier. And I nudge my bar buddy, uh, Art, hey, there's a cold catapult. We get to see one in person. And just then, uh, you saw a flash as the canopy uh, blew off. Spike was in the back. He was a real. He says, this plane's not going to fly. I'm punching this out. The pilot's focused on trying to make it fly. The ejection seats go out. The reel goes to the right. Spike uh, goes right, and tag goes left. And then the airplane hits the water. And now it's skipping across the water, oh, man. making these little rings of fluorescent light. And then you see the nose go up. <laughs> now it's 2,000 pounds lighter without uh, the canopy and the two ejection seats. Yeah, and the pilots. And the pilots. And it starts climbing up, and it's a black night, and it starts doing a dirty loop. And you see these two huge 40-foot cones of uh, afterburner all of a sudden disappear directly overhead the ship. Oh, no. And we, well, we knew it didn't run out of fuel. Yeah. But then you hear the scream from the front end of the uh, engines, which is really noisy. Yeah. And that F-14's coming right back at the aircraft carrier. <laughs> and the 100 people on the flight deck are scurrying, looking for cover. Because a 60,000-pound airplane hitting you at two or 300 miles an hour is going to be like a kamikaze. It would not be pretty. And it actually hit the water. It almost finished that dirty loop and impacted the water probably about 50 yards from the landing signal uh, officer platform, LSO platform. Uh -huh. Great big fluorescent ring, floated there for 30 seconds and then just disappeared. Mm. So that's where the plane is. Well, we're Spike and Tag. Well, uh, Spike's going down the starboard side uh -huh. and he was able to get away from his uh, parachute and he went, oh boy, I'm safe. Well, the, the carrier deck's about 60 feet above the, uh, the water and all the Dozens of sailors up on the flight deck with these uh, flashlights that have plastic cones on them for directing aircraft. Yeah. Want to mark where he is in the water. So they start throwing these flashlights in the water, the market. And these are sailors that couldn't qualify for a marksmanship badge with a, a pistol at all, but they were dead on with a flashlight. And he was getting pelted with these flashlights coming down from six stories up. Oh, man. But the tag went off to the left side. He lands in the water, and they're in literally only about 100 yards in front of the carrier. Yeah. And he managed to release his uh, Coke fittings and get out of his parachute, and he went, Shh, got yeah. away from the parachute. Then the bow wave of the carrier caught him, threw him into the parachute, and wrapped him up like a Cuban cigar. Oh, man. And he gets run over by the carrier, starts bobbing underneath the carrier, and it's a good 30 to 40 feet underwater. And he's actually computing how long it's going to take him before he gets to where the screws are. And and these are 40-foot uh, screws on oh, the yeah. 
huge. Well, well, somehow he missed those and he pops out on the back end and the helicopter comes to pick him up and a rescue swimmer drops in the water, hooks up to his uh, snap link, tries to start hoisting him, but he's being pulled down by this parachute that's a sea anchor. Basically because it's got water in it now. Yes, and, and it's pulling the helicopter down and, and tags in the middle. And the uh, rescue swimmer had to hoist back up couldn't find his knife, but they found a pair of uh, boat cutters. Yeah. And he had to go back down there and not drop the boat cutters in the water, go underwater and cut these uh, parachute wow. lines. So, so that that was uh, my first night on the uh, aircraft carrier. And, and, and that was a pretty hectic first night, but you couldn't just say, hey, take me back to shore, could you? No, I was on board for uh, a couple days, and then I got on a, a Tomcat and uh, flew back out and then about three months later I came out for my uh, carrier qualifications but it wasn't near as exciting. Well, that's a that's a pretty wild introduction to uh, to the service and you had a, a real uh, you had a real good career with uh, with the service and that uh, you were telling me that you learned civilian flying back when you were on shore then you were flying military jets when you were on the ship. Correct so uh, I uh, ended civilian-wise, I ended up getting my private instrument and uh, commercial. And my first shore duty, I picked the Naval Academy, and I uh, was able to teach flying and offshore sailing there, which is quite a bit of fun. But I needed my flight instructor, so I picked that up uh, as well as my flight instructor instrument and used the Naval Academy Flying Club where we had Moonies and uh, Yankees and other aircraft that were a lot of fun. After the, the Naval Academy, I kind of wanted to get into the uh, astronaut mission specialists, but I, I needed a, a master's degree in engineering. And my undergrad was pre-vet animal husbandry. Uh-huh. About really as match. Uh, that doesn't go into space very well. Well, it could these days with <laughs> Mars exploration and whatnot, but not then. So the Navy kind of had a deal. Okay, if you go do a disassociated sea tour on an aircraft carrier, then we'll let you go to the Monterey Naval Postgraduate School and get a engineering degree. Great. So I went and served uh, two years on the USS Midway in Japan, running the flight deck and the fuels and uh, assistant mini boss. But I could keep my flying up in uh, F-4 Phantoms and uh, EA-6s for uh, currency. After two years there, it was uh, two years at the Naval Postgraduate School and I got my master's in aerospace engineering. Perfect. And uh, we had a semester class in uh, flight tests and then I got to go to National Test Pilot School, not uh, the Navy or the Air Force, but National, uh, and Mojave. Uh, got to see Burt Rutan and all Sean Roberts and all those guys. Nice. And then uh, I ended up going back to an aircraft carrier, George Washington, to uh, train the new crew as we built this new aircraft carrier. We uh, pre-commissioned it, and it was a brand-new aircraft carrier. And I got to keep up my flying with not only the uh, F-14 squadron out of... Uh, Oceana, but VFC uh, 10 or 12, where we had uh, A4s that were two-seaters, and we were adversaries. That's wild. So now, and you were, you told me some funny stories about uh, during the Cold War, and they weren't funny at the time, mm-hmm. uh, about uh, the, you and the Russians were playing tag a little bit. That was kind of a normal routine. Uh, hit me with one quick story about that. What's one, one key takeaway? I remember uh, once we intercepted uh, two bear bombers, probably 300 miles out from the carrier battle group, and we have one F-14 right next to them and one behind in an offensive position, and uh, the pilot uh, raised up uh, three fingers four times. That meant 
333.3. And we dialed it in on the UHF and a KBG agent came on and said, Comrade, tell us where the aircraft carrier is so we can all go home. <laughs> and we went, Igor, we can't do that. I'm sorry, you know, we want to go home too. And he says, well, we just got this new camera from China, Beijing. Uh, can you do something for us that we can film? <laughs> so we did some aileron rolls and some uh, afterburner and uh, popped some uh, chaff and flare. And so on someone's home video, uh, we're on that. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. I mean, I know it was very serious at the time, uh, but there are some lighter moments to, to your uh, career. And and you told me that you uh, you did apply for uh, for the astronauts program, and I, I, I'm not sure if you made it or not. Tell us if you did. Well, when I was on the USS Midway, uh, I believe we had the uh, the Challenger accident, and that certainly delayed things three or four yeah. uh, years. Um, I I did uh, apply after I completed completed uh, Naval Postgraduate School and got my Master's in Aerospace Engineering. And I got my letter from NASA saying, thank you very much for applying. Consider applying again in the future, but not this year. So I have my rejection letter for being an astronaut. Well, why don't you reapply now? <laughs> I'm enjoying what I'm doing so much with uh, Cirrus. <laughs> That's a good way to, to almost wrap it up over here uh, on Hangar Talk. Uh, and this is uh, uh, basically live on the Green River with a little bit of wind noise behind us as the sun sets. Um, tell me a little bit about what this means to you, this trip that we're on right now uh, for these vets. Tell me a little bit. Of, uh, we started the program with that, but one more time, kind of wrap it all up. I mean, how do you feel about joining these guys so far? Well, Tim Valentine is the one that called me up and invited me uh, not only as a serious pilot but as a uh, a veteran and Dennis Haber is in the, the same situation and we were both Cold War and there really wasn't a lot of shooting going on. The other veterans out here are combat veterans from Afghanistan and uh, Bosnia yeah. and, and Kosovo, yeah. Iraq and they've got scars and burns and tattoos and stories that I am just so impressed with and to see them relax and a bond with each other and they're from different services army and green beret and marine corps and special forces uh, these are people 30 and 40 years old uh, they've suffered a traumatic brain injury and who knows if they've had ptsd but out here they're just relaxed and enjoying uh, life and it, it's just such a privilege to uh, be able to, to thank them for what they did and I'm uh, privileged to be part of that trip as well. And we're glad that General Aviation is part of this trip. Um, the OARS people, O-A-R-S, uh, they're an outdoor uh, outfitter company. They're uh, guiding us down the river, the Green River in Utah, um, that empties into the Grand Canyon. And uh, we're about to wrap the trip up. Um, we're going to thank Gary Black for, for joining us. For uh, Can we call you Blackie now? Yeah, that's my call sign. Okay, so tell us how folks can get in touch with you or the folks at Cirrus if they want to fly. Well, fortunately, I'm uh, based right in uh, Duluth, Minnesota at the factory. I'm the only salesperson up there. If you're flying through uh, Duluth, give me a call or send me an email. I would be glad to tour you through the, uh, the factory. Um, we also have a great facility in uh, Knoxville, uh, Tennessee, and we love to give uh, tours there as well. And so is the website Cirrus.com? CirrusAircraft.com. All right, CirrusAircraft.com, and uh, just uh, tap into that. You can find the links and, uh, and hopefully end up flying uh, maybe with Gary and get your own Cirrus. Thanks again, Gary. 
Thank you very much, David. Appreciate it. All right, David. So uh, thanks for uh, thanks for grabbing him. Just a very interesting guy and a, a great conversation. Yeah, Gary was a good paddler. Also, Ian, I was t- at the top of the show, <laughs> I mentioned it. You know that I uh, paddled with him. I was taking pictures and reporting on it. Um, but uh, he really, really has a cool background and brings a lot to the table. And you know, we talked a little bit more about. Uh, the parachute idea and what makes a family comfortable uh, with their kids or with their spouse when they're out uh, in this type of aircraft. And Cirrus is the best-selling aircraft, you know, GA aircraft still um, for a number of quarters in a row. Now, I just think that brings a lot to the table for uh, for peace of mind and things like that. And now we know a little bit more about how that flight testing program started and, and Gary's input into the parachute. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thanks. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. And we're on iTunes and at the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time, David. See you, Ian. Thanks. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.